The Hebrew scripture reading is from Isaiah 42. The prophet writes, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, who, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel reading is from Matthew 3, the story of Jesus' baptism. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Today marks the second Sunday in the season of Epiphany. After Claire and Zach had contacted me and asked me to preach today's sermon in their absence, I immediately began thinking of a topic that would be relevant to this period of time in the church calendar. Those of you who know me well understand that I sometimes feel like I may have missed my calling when it came to college majors. While I can't say that I didn't enjoy my studies in business administration and management, I also can't say that I enjoyed my business classes as much as I enjoyed my English composition classes, or anything to do with writing for that matter. Therefore, when I started thinking about sermon topics for the Epiphany, the first thing I wanted to do was some background research on the word itself. At home, I have a, a bound copy, about that thick, of um, Noah Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language, which we were required to use during my high school education at the highly conservative Catahoula Christian Academy. <laughs> Mr. Webster had but one meaning for the word epiphany in this dictionary. A Christian festival celebrated on the sixth day of January, the 12th day after Christmas, in commemoration of the appearance of our Savior to the Magians or philosophers of the East who came to adore him with presents, or as others maintain, to commemorate the appearance of the star to the Magians or the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. Jerome and Chrysostom take the epiphany to be the day of our Savior's baptism when a voice from heaven declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Greek fathers used the word for the appearance of Christ in the world, the sense in which Paul used the word. If we move forward in time to the current edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, 
we'll find the definition also includes these variations on epiphany. First, an appearance or manifestation especially of a divine being. Then, a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. An intuitive grasp of reality through something usually simple and striking. An illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. A revealing scene or moment. I have two favorite phrases from this definition. And the crux of today's message lies beneath an exploration of these two phrases. First, an intuitive grasp of reality. And second, an illuminating discovery. I had a happy childhood. I'm the youngest by 10 years of three children. I'm also the youngest of 23 grandchildren on my mother's side. And I lived right next door to my grandma. So you might be able to imagine how spoiled I was. One of my cousins reminds me to this day, you were the favorite. We all hated you. <laughs> my grandmother passed away when I was six years old. But I can still remember the exact pew she sat in during church each Sunday. The color and the stitching of the pillow that she kept on the pew to ease the pain on her back. I can remember her always having a church time treat for me in her purse. My mother's family's always been very close, and as many members as possible would gather at Grandma's house for lunch after church each Sunday. Therefore, Grandma would do a good bit of the cooking before she went to Sunday school each week. This played out in the precious baby's favor. I can remember more than one occasion when I was sitting in church, after I had drawn pictures in every vacant spot on the church bulletin, that Grandma would reach into her purse and pull out a little something for me. You might expect a piece of gum, maybe a cherry lifesaver, a peppermint, a butterscotch. It was the mid-70s. What grandmother did not have at least one butterscotch in her purse? But no, my grandma would pull out a paper napkin neatly folded up with one of my favorite things inside, fried okra. <laughs> the preacher could have talked all day long, as far as I was concerned, as long as I had a steady supply of fried okra. I thought the only thing that could have made it better is that she could have pulled out an ice-cold Dr. Pepper from that purse. I could have been there all day. My grandmother loved her church. I can recall her taking flowers from her garden to be used in our altar arrangements. My family had been a part of that little Southern Baptist church for as long as it had been in existence. I think that's one of the reasons I loved going to church so much when I was growing up. Even though I lost my grandma Martha when I was so young, I felt as if that church had a part of her in it. When you grow up in a certain environment, that's all you know. That's your only frame of reference. You're taught what your parents were taught. Your beliefs and values are shaped by their beliefs and values, regardless of whether those beliefs and values are misplaced. I can vividly remember walking down the aisle one Sunday night at age nine after a concert by the Gospel Harmonettes and giving my life to God. Hymns and gospel music have always spoken to me, and they still do today. 
my parents, particularly my mom, were always overly protective of me. And I know they felt that they were doing the best thing they could do for me when they took me out of public school and sent me to a predominantly white, private Christian school, which strengthened and even surpassed the conservative notions of the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> a lot of the self-loathing and shame that I felt during the first 30 years of my life came from my church and from my faith. While I wanted to please my God and my family, I also wondered why I was different. I was scared to death that a member of my family or a member of my church would find out that my thoughts and my feelings weren't aligning with what I'd been taught. Whenever I saw a boy that I thought was handsome, I'd feel nauseous inside, thinking, oh my God, I hope no one saw me looking at him. I hope he didn't see me looking at him. I'd cry and I'd pray for God to take these sinful feelings away from me. I was distant from my guy friends and the relationships with my girlfriends were brief. I felt that I was never good enough and that I was going to be destined for eternal damnation because I had thoughts and beliefs that were contradictory to what I'd been taught all my life. It's difficult to describe the hatred you can build for yourself when you feel that you'll never be truly able to measure up to what you feel is expected of you. It makes it even worse when you feel that you're defying your God and laying the foundation for your eternal demise. For many years, I tried to keep a happy face on the outside while I was crumbling on the inside. My first illuminating discovery regarding my relationship with God came through the words of a psychiatrist who also happened to be Southern Baptist in 2002. He told me, Mark, you need to accept the fact that you are a gay Christian man. That short sentence has etched itself into my brain. I know that Zach mentioned our current Northminster Book Club text a couple of weeks ago, educated by Tara Westover. While I've not completed the book, it has been a series of epiphanous or aha moments for me. Just like an epiphany, an intuitive grasp, or an illuminating discovery, an aha moment can be thought of as a two-part process. First, we have to be at some type of impasse where we feel like we're stuck. We feel like we've explored all the possibilities for a solution or for a way to reconcile something <clears throat> and there just doesn't seem to be an answer. The second part takes place suddenly and unexpectedly. It can be a thought that spontaneously comes to mind, or it can be a reaction to the words or actions of someone else. For those who are reading Educated, I think I can share a couple of short passages without ruining any part of the story for anyone. So I'm paraphrasing, and I'm changing a little bit of the wording. By the way, those of you that are not in the book club, regardless, I would encourage you to read this book. It is phenomenal. I had started on a path of awareness. I had discerned the ways in which we had been sculpted by a tradition given to us by others, a tradition of which we were either willfully or accidentally ignorant. I had begun to understand that we had lent our voices to a discourse whose sole purpose 
was to dehumanize and brutalize others because nurturing that discourse was easier because retaining power always feels like the way forward. Later she says, I understood this one fact, that a thousand times I had been called this name and laughed, and now I could not laugh. The word and the way he said it had not changed, only my ears were different. They no longer heard the jingle of a joke in it. What they heard was a signal, a call through time, which was answered with a mounting conviction that never again would I allow myself to be made a foot soldier in a conflict I did not understand. When that psychiatrist told me those words in 2002, it lit a new spark in my mind. It was an aha moment that made me begin to question everything I had been taught and it started a slow process. Initially, I distanced myself from God and the church for almost eight years until the Sunday I found myself in a new place, in this place, Northminster. We're immensely blessed to be a congregation of people who seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. We're a congregation that welcomes the difficult questions, that recognizes the immense struggles, that embraces each other and celebrates one another's uniqueness. My illuminating discovery for 2020 is this. I will no longer accept tradition as fact, nor will I permit others to form my beliefs. I will no longer allow myself and others to be denigrated by the narrow-minded and falsely placed mindsets of people who are claiming to be Christians, but who are not Christ-like. I will strive to be a voice and an advocate for those people who are marginalized and unable to speak and advocate for themselves. Just as the Magi had that intuitive grasp of reality when they followed the bright shining star that led them to Jesus. Just as John the Baptist had that illuminating discovery when after he, was bapt after he baptized Jesus, the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended like a, good, like a dove. Just as Tara Westover, after having been educated, would never again allow herself to be a foot soldier in a war she did not understand. I want you to ask yourself, what is mine? Epiphany. Amen. Amen.